person have come to worship him, the king of the Jews. But when Herod the king heard of this, now this was Herod the Great, this awful fellow. When he heard of this, he didn't want a rival king. And so he immediately moved to kill him. And the question is, where will Christ be born? And the answer is this passage we've already read from Micah 5, 2. And thou, Bethlehem, in the sixth verse, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So here, interwoven at, the, uh, at this time, um, early in, his, in Jesus' life, not immediately at the beginning, but early in his life, we find again the emphasis on kingship, but a very intriguing interest because here you have his kingship clashing with the, that of Herod the Great and the Roman Empire. And this, is, this brings us into proper perspective. It's not merely some spiritual, religious kingship that's meant here. It's a kingship that clashes with what we usually think of as kingship. You remember the book of Daniel, it's exactly that. All the other kingdoms of the world, the Babylonian, the Medes and the Persian, the Greek and the Romans, all the reign up to the time of the Antichrist, these will all be crashed to the ground and put to the end, and in their place will be the reign of the Messiah. It brings the two things face to face, face to face. So here we find, therefore, at the very time of his birth, a, uh, uh, immediately afterwards, of course, when the wise men came, because they came later, but uh, this bringing this, this sense of his kingship into a very, uh, very important um, perspective. Now, when Jesus began his ministry, this emphasis did not end. So we find that in the case of, uh, of Nathaniel, in John 1.49, John 1.49, after Jesus has begun his ministry, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. This bringing together these two factors, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Now we find the emphasis in his kingship, comes to a uh, to the place of greatest strength at the time of the beginning of Passion Week. The beginning of Passion Week, immediately before his death, and centered in the triumphal entry. But most people, I think, do not feel the force of the fact that the emphasis on his kingship at the uh, through the days of the Passion Week, especially the beginning of that, the emphasis on his kingship was not shut up only to the one to, to the uh, bare fact of the triumphal entry. It's related. The whole complex is an emphasis on his kingship. So, if you look at Luke 19, Luke 19, we begin his um, the time of his um, the Passion Week. Luke 19:37-38, and here we have the triumphal entry itself. And when he is, when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of the disciples, now here he's coming toward Jerusalem, the city of David, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the hearts. Now you will notice, therefore, that the triumphal entry is centered in the emphasis, Blessed be the King in the name of the Lord. The emphasis here is upon his kingship. His kingship. Now go back to the beginning of Luke 19. And uh, Luke 19, 1, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And this is the, the beginning of the whole complex here. And then verses 11 through 39, we find a unit. And we'll look at that later. But notice here at this particular place is 19, 11, 11 and 12 in the midst of this longer passage, 11 through 29, which is a unit. But 11 and 12. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now, here he is. He's coming on. The triumphal entry will be in a very almost immediately. And he speaks a parable because they thought the kingdom should immediately appear. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, there's an emphasis here that gives ample reason, as uh, there are many others, to the fact that Jesus did not let them think that his death, uh, that his coming to pick up the kingdom was to be immediately after his death, resurrection, and ascension. There's ample reason in the, long, in the teaching of Jesus to understand that he was saying something of a longer period. But at the moment, let's just notice that he's an emphasis upon the kingdom. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, the Jews would have understood this, inter interestingly enough, very well, because by this time, the Jewish kings had to go to Rome in order to become the kings. It's a very intriguing picture. These people were, they were kings by right of Rome. In our study of our secular history and uh, Biblical history, in these last lectures we've had, we were speaking about the Maccabees. And the Maccabees, at a certain point, were able to be free. But after this, they were very much under Rome. So when the, these kings were to be kings, they had to go to Rome, be named as, as king, then come back. Now, he's drawing the same kind of a thing. He says, uh, I'm going to tell you a story about a nobleman who went away to get a kingdom and to return. A far country. So let us notice that at the very beginning of the Passion Week, now this is on Saturday. This is all the way on the previous Saturday. All the way to the previous Saturday. So if you think of Jesus as being crucified on Friday, which is, I believe is the case, then what you have here is almost a full week in advance. And as he's moving toward his crucifixion and moving into his into Passion Week, even prior to the triumphal entry, 
he frames the whole thing with a story of an emphasis upon kingdom. To receive for himself a kingdom. Now you should notice that this is, an, this is a unit with a triumphal entry. The reason I gave you the unit as 11 through 29, rather through 11 through 27, where this, this story he's telling here actually ends, is I want you to feel the unity with a triumphal entry. Because you, you have the Saturday passage ending it with 27, and then you run right on into Sunday and the triumphal entry. And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he was nigh to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, etc., 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 etc. It just flows right on. You have a unity here. So though it would seem as though the one is on Saturday, the other is on Sunday, yet nevertheless you have a, a, a complete unit moving toward the triumphal entry, but already framing it the day before in what he's saying in exactly the same terminology. Christ is king. Christ is king. Now you will notice in Matthew, in Matthew 20.30, in Matthew 20.30, which is the place where you begin the, uh, par the parallel passage in uh, passages in Matthew, Matthew 20.30, you have also the, the beginning here uh, with an emphasis on Christ as king. This time, not his own word. This also is on Saturday. But you find the two blind men. What are they saying? O Lord, thou son of David. O Lord, thou son of David. And this sets the frame for this whole, for this as it comes in Matthew. And obviously, these people didn't think this up of themselves. It was obviously something that was the setting. Jesus didn't reprove them. By the time you get to the 21st chapter and the ninth verse where you're on Sunday and in the midst of the triumphal entry, it's the same. Hosanna to the son of David. That's 21.9. Hosanna to the son of David. Back the day before the blind men. O Lord, thou son of David. Here you have a total unity. The framework of the Entrance into the whole Passion Week is an emphasis on Christ as King. Christ as King. We don't understand this unless we understand that. Now moving on into Sunday. We have Matthew 21, 1 through 9. I've just read to you the ninth verse. That's Sunday, Matthew 21, 1 through 9. And verse 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, and the foal of an ass. What is the emphasis? The emphasis is king. Meek, it is true. But sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And then down in the ninth verse, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Now I'll just remark in passing here that each of the four Gospels in recounting this, puts its emphasis on the word king. Each of the four Gospels, they approach, of course, the different things from a slightly different viewpoint. But nevertheless, at this particular place, there is no difference of viewpoint. The whole emphasis is upon the kingship of Christ. Now let's go back to the fifth verse again. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. 
I have a feeling that most of us, most of us when we read this, we think of his coming on a, a colt, the fall of an ass, as a sign of his meekness. I think that's the way most people read this. But it's exactly the opposite. It's a sign of his kingship. It's a sign of his kingship. Notice way back in Zechariah, I skipped this prophecy purposely to bring it in at this particular place. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, in Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So here you have a specific prophecy in the book of Zechariah which speaks of the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. Christ is the king. And it's this passage which is cited, not quoted word for word, but cited in what we've read over in Matthew 21, 5. So at this particular place in Matthew 21, 5, it is a specific fulfillment and the New Testament insists it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. But now what about the sign of the king in riding upon, uh, upon this animal he rode on? We'll turn back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings, long, long ago. 1 Kings 1.33. It's a very crucial moment in the history. David is dying, and he is placing... Solomon on his throne prior to his death. He is placing, placing him on his throne prior to his death. 1 Kings one thirty three. The king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon my own mule. The intriguing thing is that the thing which demonstrated to the populace that this man had been chosen by David to be his successor was that he rode upon the animal, the mule, of David. It was the public declaration. Rather than being a related here to meekness only, certainly, there is the emphasis, this is what David did. It's very exciting, really. How did David show that Solomon was his immediate successor? He rode upon the mule, which David owned. And when the moment came for the greater son of David to come toward Jerusalem in the setting and the complex of Hosanna, son of David, king, he came upon the same animal riding exactly the same. So when we think of him coming, riding upon uh, this animal, we do not want to think of the emphasis primarily being on his meekness. But it was the very same sign that David himself used as the public declaration that this was Solomon, in that case, the, the follower of his line. Now, Christ comes as the real follower of the line, the real king out of David's line. And he comes to Jerusalem exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. Now to go on in the 21st verse, verses 15 through 16, and it's in the midst of the triumphal entry. 
And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And they said to him, Here's what these say. And Jesus said to them, Yea, have ye never read, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? Now there's two things to notice here. Is that Jesus here officially accepted the praise. And the praise was, Thou son of David. The praise that was being raised to him was as the king, thou son of David, and he never hesitated. When the chief priest and the scribe says, repudiate it, he said, not at all, not one word. I do not repudiate it. This is what I am. And if I do not, did not accept it here, in a parallel passage, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. So important is it that at this particular moment, the declaration be made, this is the greater son of David. So instead of repudiating it, he thrust it home upon them. The very stones would cry if there wasn't a human voice to be raised at this particular moment. So the first thing to notice is that he accepted it. But the second thing to notice here is something one would miss if one was not a bit careful. And that is, he says, Yea, hast thou never read? Now, what he's doing here is quoting an Old Testament passage. And it isn't word for word. It's a citation again. But what he's, what he's citing is Psalm 8.2. And so if you'll turn back there, hold your finger in Matthew, and turn back to Psalm 8.2, you will find another prophetic passage, a passage in the book of Psalms concerning Christ the King that, again, I deliberately passed by when I was going over it, to bring in at its proper place. Now, the, um, the eighth psalm is a messianic psalm, not only because of 8.2, but of 8.4 and, um, and 6, and so on. But 8.2 at this particular point. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. You see, this is, a, this is what Jesus quotes, and that's where he stopped. Jesus stopped there. But the psalm didn't stop there. And I have no doubt in my mind that he said it this way and that he knew that the people he said it to would finish the psalm in their own minds. They wouldn't stop. The people he's speaking to were not, these were not just the common people. If he spoke merely the common people, maybe they wouldn't finish the psalm in their minds. But he was speaking of the chief priests and scribes. So they would understand the end of the psalm, all right. Because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. This is the reason. He connects here the cry of those who are praising him as the son of David to his, in, his, in his kingly work into the stilling of the enemy and the avenger. Now then, undoubtedly, these people who heard this understood that he was, in a way, speaking about them. But there is something much more than his speaking about them, because Christ is to pick up his kingly work in order to strike the real avenger, the real enemy, and that's Satan. And we're back again now to a bridge to his priestly work. He is going to exercise his kingly office to strike the real enemy 
And the real enemy is the devil. So when he brings this together in the, in the book of Matthew, in the 21st chapter, in verses 15, 16, it becomes an exceedingly sharp, sharp instrument that he's using here. Now then, so here he has the whole complex of the beginning of Passion Week um, from the very beginning is in the center of Christ as King. Instead of repudiating it, he insists upon accepting it. That brings us, we've gone through Saturday, Sunday, now we come to Monday, the Passion Week. And if you look over at Mark 11, 12 through 17, Mark 11, 12 through 17, and on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, we're, we're at Monday at this particular place. And he sees a fig tree in the 13th verse. In the 14th verse, he curses it. No man eat fruit of thee hence hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Then the 15th verse, if you're glancing down through it, he cleanses the temple. And that continues in the 16th verse and the 17th verse. My house shall be called uh, of all nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Just to say it's a very small passing word, though I don't want to get involved in it, that he's quoting here from Isaiah 56.7. And if you read Isaiah 56.7, you'll find that it's an emphasis upon the missionary call of the Jews. What you have here is a an oblique declaration that they have not fulfilled their missionary call. The Jews have not fulfilled their missionary call. Now, you'll notice then he has done two things. First of all, he speaks to this fig tree, and then secondly, he cleanses the temple. He cleanses the temple. Now, let's look over at Matthew 21, 17 through 20. Just running down through these parallel passages, not exhausting them, of course. And not bringing them all together. But just the thing in line with our study at this moment. Christ is king. Matthew 21, 17 through 20. And we find he returned to the city. He saw the fig tree. And he says, Let no fruit grow in thee henceforth forever. And immediately, presently, not immediately, sorry, presently, quickly, soon, the fig tree withered away. So soon that everybody said in the 20th verse, how soon is the fig tree withered away? How soon? Now then, bringing this together, what we find here is that Jesus, in the midst then of the Passion Week, having accepted the praise and, accept, and insisting upon it, and you notice if in Matthew 21, we're just immediately under the passage we'd looked at before, 15, 16, now the fig tree. You find that he does two things on this Monday. The first thing is he speaks to the fig tree. He speaks to the fig tree. And in doing so, doing so he shows himself the king of all creation. In the cleansing of the temple, he shows himself as the, as the religious ruler, but emphasis on ruler. He has a right to. He has a right to cleanse the temple. He is the ruler. 
But in speaking to the tree, he speaks to him, he speaks to that which is a portion of creation. And then as he shows his, his kingship over all creation. Now, immediately then, we've had three things brought together. In his entrance into the city of Jerusalem as a king, as, a, as the rightful heir of the house of David, he accepts the fact that he is civil king. He has the right of civil kingship. He cleanses the temple and claims the right of religious ruler, as a religious ruler. He speaks to the fig tree and shows himself as the king of all creation. So by the time you come to this particular place, Jesus has accepted the whole circle and put forth the whole circle of, of kingship in the widest possible sense. Now then, what will the Jews do about it? And the, the Jesus dealing with this in Luke 19, we're back in Luke 19 now, we find that he, he goes on with this in exactly the same vein, the vein of kingship again. In Luke 19, 38 through 44, Luke 19, 38 through 44, Now you'll notice I've begun back in Sunday again, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I wanted that word king and peace brought together. King and priest brought, brought together. It's at the triumphal entry. Now on Monday, because that's where we are, we find him speaking from verse 41 down through 44. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. It's one of those passages of Jesus weeping. When he came near the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to thy peace. Now, what have they said up above in 38? Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the, war, of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest peace. So he said, well, if you understood what is happening, all right, you would understand this is the hope of your peace. There isn't any other hope. But now they're hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench round about thee and compass thee round and keep thee on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. So, the day before, the crowd is calling, Peace. Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace. Peace. And he says to them the next day, mm, Here's something weep about. If you only knew really what the situation is, if you only understood what really are the elements of thy peace. But now, you turn, you turn away. And as you turn away, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation, all these terrible things are going to happen. And instead of peace, there'll be nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. Now, Jesus is saying here, because they are, the Jews at this particular time, are casting away because they're casting away 
this moment, when he came, when with their own lips they had stated the situation, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace. Because of this, there was nothing but sorrow. So it all turns upon the rejection of his rightful kingship. The rejection of his rightful kingship. You remember back in Luke 2, 11 and 14, when the, um, Luke 2, 11 and 14, when the angels are appearing concerning his coming. Luke 2, Luke 2, 11 through 14. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Surely there's a relationship here between that and what they say in the triumphal entry in Luke 19:38. Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Surely there's a connection here. But they're not to know this peace. Because the king has come. And he's the rightful king. And all the prophecies spoke of him as the king, as well as the prophet and the priest. Instead of that, they turn away. And hence, there is no peace. There is no peace but trouble. And terrible trouble. And that brings us then up through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and we certainly by this time ought to have a sense that the whole thing is framed from the beginning up through up through Monday in the sense of kingship, the kingship of Jesus in all realms and all directions and ending with the tragedy of his rejection. Now on Tuesday, following right along after the triumphal entry, um, that is just a day later, just shifting backward and forward, of course, between the various passages of the Passion Week. Matthew 21, 28 through 32. And here we find, in this passage, coming right after Passion Week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, moving right along, Matthew 21, 28 through 32, we find some stories Jesus tells, some parables. And the first one is about two sons. The first one is the true son, two sons. Now, he has spoken of the day before of the tragedy of the Jews in rejecting him as king. And these stories really are a part of that same exposition. It's the same thought involved here. The 28th verse, what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And the first one says, I'll go. And of course, he didn't go. And then the other said, the other one said, no, but then he went. And Jesus says, whether of them twain did the will of his father? And they said unto him, the first. And Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. That the publicans, the publicans and harlots believed him, and ye, when ye have seen, repented not afterwards that ye might believe him. So here you have the here you have a sense of rejection and somebody else taking the place. A sense of rejection and somebody else taking the place. Then the next thing, the next story is the next story is the story of the householder. 
the story of the householder, beginning with the 33rd verse. And another parable, there was a certain householder. Now notice, at, notice verse 37. But last unto them he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. So here you have again, the moment is at hand. Remember the setting. The, the, they've already, the crowd's been crying, Hosanna, and then he says, Oh, if you only knew. If you only knew. Then he follows along and he keeps telling them what's occurred and what they're doing. The rejection, somebody else taking the place. And here in this 37th verse, this tragic thing. But last of all, he sent unto them his son. He sent the, God has sent the prophets. The Jews haven't listened. Now he sent his son, saying, they will reverence my son. You feel a special strength if you connect this with the parallel passages. If you hold your hand right here and look at Mark 12:6, the parallel passage in Mark 12:6, Mark 12:6. Having yet therefore one son, his well beloved, just an overwhelming verse. He sent him also last unto them, saying, "They will reverence my son." He had just one son. Of course, as we think of John 3 the only begotten of the Father. The only begotten of the Father. Having one son, his well-beloved, he sent them, sent the son. And he sent the long string of prophets, and the Jews haven't heard. Now the son comes, and it's a well-beloved son. He only has one son, he sends him. But they don't listen. They don't listen. They just turn aside. They turn aside from him. The same thing you find in Luke 20, 13. And it's worth noticing that this emphasis is in both of these parallel passages of the well-beloved. In Luke 20, 13. Luke 20, 13. What shall I do? I will send my well-beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But, of course, the 15th verse, what they done? They kill him. They kill him. So turning back to the Matthew passage, which we're using as our basis here to follow along, he tells about the, the two brothers, or the two sons. Then he tells about the householder and sending him. And uh, they'll reverence my son, but no, they'll kill him. And the third story, it just flows right along, is in the 22nd chapter, the marriage. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king. You notice the emphasis upon the king, which made a marriage for his son. You, you feel the continuity here. In the householder, 37, uh, 21, 37. Last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. The story of the king, the same, uh, in the marriage. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. For his son. But in each case, the unhappy result is the same. The unhappy result is the same. He is rejected of the Jews. He is rejected of the Jews. And in each, in each individual, in each place. But in Jews reject him. And so Jesus is saying, this is a tragedy. You're rejecting the king. And the sorrows come. The sorrows come. 
Now when we go on here, we find therefore that the emphasis comes that there is a shift from the Jew to the Gentile. From the Jew to the Gentile. The, up to this, here is, the, here is the shifting point. Hosanna to the son of David. And then he's rejected. And then Jesus the next day begins to tell the stories emphasizing the shift from Jew to the Gentile. From Jew to Gentile. Now you will notice in the... Um, oh yes, I was looking desperately for a verse I'd lost. In 2143, back in the householder, Therefore say I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So he says, you've rejected your rightful king, now comes the shift. The kingdom of God given to somebody else. The kingdom of God is given to somebody else. And here is the, here is the, the change. See, it's 2143. Then he goes on in the 22nd chapter, as I pointed out. The king, the marriage supper, and, or the marriage, and it's a, the, he's introducing a new era. And he speaks concerning the Jews again. In the 8th verse, the wedding is ready, but they that are, were bidden were not ready. It's the same thing. Here's the Jews. And the Jews, the Jews now are not ready, they're not worthy, and there's a new era. A new era. And in the 12th and the 13th verse, the, the turn to the Gentiles. But to the Gentiles, don't think you can come without the wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? Here is uh, the act of obedience of Christ. And he was speechless. Then said the king unto the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The turn is from the end 21.43 and 22.8, surrounding the rejection of the king, the turn is from the Jew to the Gentile, but don't think you can come without a wedding garment. What you need is a Savior. And then, of course, if from this particular place we go on again to think, it should be strong in our mind of Christ, the priest, with his active and passive obedience. Now, so much, therefore, uh, for these days. We have come down through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, and the the whole setting is in the complex of Christ the King. Now, this does not stop, because in John 18.37, where we find Christ before Pilate, we find he is being charged with being a king. 18.37, it isn't just through these days prior to his death, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then it breaks off. It isn't. There's a continuity here that if we feel the force of it is, is really overwhelming seems to me. John 18:37. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. And this whole sense here is an affirmative. But he makes it even clearer. To this end was I born, and for this cause came unto to the world. So, that I might bear witness to the truth, etc. But it's in, again, it's in the framework of the king. Why was he killed? Well, Herod tried to kill him at the very beginning because the cry was, where is the king that's born king of the Jews? Pilate kills him at the end at exactly the same point because of the king, the aspect of the king. 
Now, the Jews' chief emphasis in killing was upon the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God, divine. But to the but to the their cry, which projected him in before the face of of Pilate in Rome, was the was the on the side of his kingship. And notice in the 19th chapter these terrible scenes concerning his death. How much of them are on the emphasis of his kingship? Nothing else. So in the 19th chapter of John, the second verse, and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. It's all the way back. It's rooted. Here is the king. The Jews have turned from him. But he goes right on, and he's crucified as the king. The soldiers platted a crown of thorns, the second verse. Here is the sign of a king, a crown. And they put on his head, and they put on a purple robe, the royal purple, and said, Hail, king of the Jews. Twelfth verse. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king, speaketh against Caesar. The same thing again. A king. A king. But we have seen something. We have seen way back at the triumphal entry, at the beginning of this week, uh, he said the stones would cry out. He didn't reject the testimony, Hosanna, of the household of David. Not at all. Now here he stands here, and Pilate wants to get out of this. And they, they just trap him because they say, you're not Caesar's friend if you do this. And Pilate wasn't his own, wasn't his own, wasn't he, he wasn't his own master. His master was Caesar, and they just trap him. Thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. But from, from the, the testimony of what's involved here, here he's going on to the cross as Christ the King. Christ the King. He's going to perform his priestly work on the cross, his substitution, but he goes to the cross as Christ, the King. In the 13th verse, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat him down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the payment, but in the Hebrew, Gabbathon. And as it was the preparation of the Passover, the 14th verse, and about the sixth hour, he said unto the Jews, Behold your King. Ma, I tell you, there's, not, there's no room to move here. It's Jesus the King that's being crucified this day. And the answer in the 15th verse, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And at that particular point, they have rejected the household of David. There's something here that is titanic in its framework. All the promises, the son of David, the household of David, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, all the rest, Shiloh, the coming one, Ezekiel, the line of Solomon has been corrupt, but there's a coming one. And here we find then in this whole complex of the Passion Week, Christ the King, and culminating with a statement by the Jewish leaders, we have no king but Caesar. No king but Caesar. In the 19th verse, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's dying as the king. 
The 21st verse, Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. So Jesus Christ died upon the cross as our priest. You remember the prophecy we saw way back in the Old Testament, the, prophet, the priest and the king together. The priest and the king together. This is not in Zechariah. And, and here we find him. He is dying his priestly death. But the mark upon the cross is Jesus the King of the Jews. Jesus the King of the Jews. Now then he dies there. Soon there is the open tomb, physical resurrection. Soon after this there is the ascension, and he's gone to heaven. Does, does the church continue to speak of him as the king? Yes or no? And we, have, we don't have to guess about it, because over in the book of Acts, in the 17th chapter, verse 7, we find this amazing word, 17-7. They're making a charge against Jason, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. They don't stop. The word Jesus the king does not stop when he dies upon the cross. We have here a testimony of the fact that as the gospel was preached in the Pauline journeys, there was still an emphasis on Jesus the king. Jesus the king. It doesn't end with his death on the cross. Now then, this raises the question, how is Jesus king? And Jesus king is king in three ways. Jesus is king in three ways. And I have to make a hard decision. Because either I have to go on longer than our two hours, or split this in the middle, or stop. And I have a feeling I better stop. I don't like not using the two hours, but I think this is the only place I can stop with any degree of satisfaction for any of us. So with the concept of Christ as king, the Lord willing, we'll begin next time with the three aspects of Christ as King. But surely, as we have traced down through it to this point, we must be moved. We must see that in our emphasis upon Christ as priest, we mustn't minimize Christ as King from a scriptural viewpoint. In our previous study of Christ as prophet, we saw that we mustn't minimize the emphasis of Christ as prophet the fourth tower for God. I'm sorry, the fourth tower for God. The giver of knowledge first. Then he dies upon the cross as priest. But he does not just die upon the cross as, as priest, but in order to implement his death and what his death achieved, there is the kingship of Jesus Christ. And this concludes now, at this time, our 18th study 
of the doctrines of the Bible. It is likewise a to the 